Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, the story of the country's very first paramedics, an experiment in the black community of Pittsburgh that revolutionized medical care. We were a group of individuals that society said wouldn't amount to anything. The least likely to succeed. Society's throwaways. But society made one mistake that didn't tell us that. They were called Freedom House Ambulance Service. We learned it was important for you to take care of the person immediately and while you're on your way to the hospital, not just wait till you get to the hospital. And it had never been done before. I mean, literally, people would stop what they were doing to watch us take care of somebody. And even though the story of these men and women is little known, their work has become the foundation for emergency medical care as we know it today. Not only is the world's first paramedic born, but so is the idea that the world's first paramedic will be a black man from the Hill District of Pittsburgh. This is the pioneer. This was the first step on the moon for this field of medicine. Up until the late 1960s, if you had a heart attack or a stroke or were injured in a car accident, this is who might show up to take you to the hospital. The volunteer fire department, the police department, or you might call the funeral home. And they would have about maybe a weekend's worth of training, certainly less training than the lifeguard at your public pool. And they would have little to no equipment at all, meaning that the only thing they could do for you was provide a ride. This is Kevin Hazard. He's a former paramedic and author of American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. Every city in America had the exact same problem, which was that the paramedic did not exist, and there was nobody on an ambulance who was trained and equipped to handle the wide range of emergencies that happened on a daily basis. But any way you looked at it, people were dying unnecessarily due to a lack of pre-hospital care. And you're more likely to survive a gunshot wound in Vietnam than you were in the United States. In Southeast Asia, these young men who were at war had a corpsman crouching next to them that would be there to administer aid immediately. Whereas back home, there was nobody. You were thrown in the back of a friend's car and sped to a hospital, or maybe you were tossed into a hearse or the back of a police paddy wagon. For Black Americans, the situation was much worse. If you couldn't find a ride to the hospital, you had to call the police. They were solely a swoop and scoop type of uh, service that we had to rely on. This is John Moon. He lived in the Hill District, the black neighborhood in Pittsburgh. The Hill District did have a very tenuous relationship with the police. Oftentimes, you would call the police and they would arrive at your residence. And if you were perhaps lying on the floor unconscious, uh, the first thought in their mind is that you were drunk. And they would probably leave you there to just sleep it off. You did your best to avoid any engagement with law enforcement, period. Mitchell Brown grew up in Pittsburgh's Hill District. When Brown was 17, he came home to find his mother lying on the floor unresponsive. I didn't have anybody to call. I didn't have a car. And how was I going to get her to the hospital? I picked her up and put her on the sofa, 
called the police and asked them would they come and take care of her. In due time, they did show up. And they took one look at my mom and said that she was drunk and they were not going to take her to the hospital. I explained to them that she did not drink and they had to do something because I didn't know what to do. And they said, well, that's on you. And they started to leave the house. I immediately picked my mom up and carried her down the stairs. And I literally put her in the back of what was then a paddy wagon and said, you got to take her to the hospital. They weren't very happy about it, but there wasn't much they could do at that point. And so they took her to a hospital. And I just always remember the police officer talking to the nursing staff. They told them that she was probably drunk. Then they left and nobody came around. Nobody did anything. She just laid in the hallway with me by her side for about 45 minutes. She couldn't talk, she didn't talk. I just you know, kept saying, Mom, it's gonna be okay. You know, we're in the hospital and they're gonna take care of you. But that's not what happened. It was almost an hour before anyone in the emergency room came over to check on Mitchell Brown's mother. By then, it was too late. She never ever regained consciousness. And unfortunately, she died five days later. Mildred Brown died of a cerebral hemorrhage. She was 35 years old. I just didn't comprehend why people didn't do something sooner, but I had no medical knowledge, so I figured they were doing the right thing. It wasn't until many years later that I realized that they could have possibly saved their life. And I had a very, very foul taste in my mouth about medicine and very, very foul taste in my mouth about law enforcement. Now, there happened to be a doctor practicing in Pittsburgh at the time who saw what was going on there and knew exactly what needed to be done. His name was Peter Saffer, and he was an anesthesiologist who came to the U.S. from Austria. Saffer's truly an extraordinary figure. I mean, the man was nominated three times to the Nobel Prize in Medicine. Earlier in his career, Saffer discovered a better way to treat patients who had stopped breathing. If you were not breathing, what we would do is you would be lied face down on the floor, and someone would press on your shoulders, and then they would flop your arms, and would wait to see if it did anything. And the idea was that if they moved you around enough, it might open and close your lungs and force oxygen inside. And Saffer looked at that, and he said, there's no way this worked. At the same time, he came across a study that said that expired air contained enough oxygen to keep people alive. So he marries the two ideas, and he, he sets up a series of tests in which he's going to disprove the old method of rescue breathing and introduce his new method, which is actual direct mouth-to-mouth rescue breathing. So um, he pays volunteers to be sedated and then paralyzed, and while they're lying on the ground, he records how his new method of mouth-to-mouth works. And he, in order to, to show that anybody could do this, he brought in entree laymen, and some of those laymen included... Boy Scouts, 11-year-old kids to keep these people alive. So he does these tests, he releases his data, and instantly the world recognizes what it has, that this rescue breathing works. He then pairs that with chest compressions, and in one fell swoop, he invents CPR. In Pittsburgh, Saffer turned his attention to another glaring problem, the lack of competent pre-hospital care. He started by developing the world's first paramedic training curriculum. What he had in mind was not simply 
teaching someone how to do CPR. What he wanted to do is he wanted to train people how to deliver babies, how to treat strokes and heart attacks, how to stop bleeds, how to treat seizures, how to treat respiratory emergencies, a full spectrum of things that can go wrong with the human body and teach laymen, ordinary people, people with no medical training, how to do that. He, But he could not get the city to sign off on this. Nobody wanted to pay the expense of training people to do this work that everybody thought only a doctor could do. The problem is he has this genius idea, but he doesn't have any people. Well, across town, there was somebody else who was reading the newspaper. My name is uh, Phil Hallen. I live in Pittsburgh, PA. I'm 92 years of age. In 1967, I was one of the people who launched the Freedom House Ambulance Service. I was the director of the Falk Foundation in Pittsburgh, which is a small grant-making foundation in the field of human rights, race relations, and diversity, particularly in the health fields. It was natural to look to the Hill District to see what our foundation could do. Hallen wanted to fund an ambulance service for residents of the Hill District so they would no longer have to rely on the police to get to the hospital. He teamed up with members of a local civil rights and job training group called Freedom House, and they met with Peter Saffer. He was, of course, a uh, very courtly Austrian with an accent who had had almost no experience with the community. I mean, he had six black people sitting in his office probably for the first time in his life. We said, we're trying to start an ambulance company to take care of people in the Hill District. When he heard ambulance company, of course, he immediately perked up. He said, I will make these people into life-saving emergency medical people by training them in the best that we know of at the present time of pre-hospital care. There was a complete rethinking of the ambulance, which up to this point had been a vehicle of transportation, to the ambulance as a mobile intensive care unit. And that's basically what happened when Safer and we all got together. The way I describe it, it says, uh, we've got the bus, you've got the gas. Mitchell Brown, the young man whose mother had died of a cerebral hemorrhage, served in Vietnam after her death. There, he trained as a medic. Then when I finally was discharged, I came back to Pittsburgh, and my aunt said, baby, you know, you know how to do this medical stuff. She said, there's this thing called Freedom House, and these guys are riding around in these vehicles, and I don't know if they know what they're doing, but just go over and check it out. And I said, well, who's in charge? And she said, uh, Dr. Peter Saffer. I said, you mean the guy that invented CPR? So I went over to um, Presbyterian University Hospital. I sat outside of his office. And when he came out, I said, did I understand you're involved with emergency medicine? And he said, yes. And I said, I'm better than anybody you've got. And he said, excuse me? I said, I'm better than anybody you've got. And uh, he immediately took me down to the emergency department and made me prove that I was as smart as I said I was and tested me on talking to patients and evaluating and doing diagnostic activities. And Peter said, yeah, you're not too bad. He said, come back tomorrow. He said, and uh, you're hired. And that's how I got involved with Freedom House. At the time, John Moon, who lived in the Hill District, was working as an orderly at Presbyterian Hospital in Pittsburgh, a position he says is one step above housekeeping. 
That's where he first found out about the Freedom House paramedics. While in one of the patient's rooms, two gentlemen came in uh, dressed in white uniforms. They had afros and beards, which was the style back at that time. And they had the Freedom House patch on their left uh, breast. And they kind of commanded a presence. It was an air of confidence. And um, I was just in awe of these two guys to the point that I wanted to be one of those guys. Once Moon got the job, he went through Dr. Saffer's extensive training. You spent time in the hospital, the intensive care unit, the cardiac care unit. We spent time in the operating room, as well as the delivery suite. In addition to that, time was spent at the local coroner's office uh, studying anatomy and physiology. In between uh, learning CPR and pharmacology, and things of that nature. So the course itself was very intense. Peter was emphatic that bring the care to the patient, not the patient to the care. And because Peter was so influential at Presbyterian University Hospital, nobody messed with us. When he opened the doors, they let him do whatever he wanted to do. So if you're with Peter, then you're cool. They weren't used to people that looked like me uh, walking into an intensive care unit or even an operating room. The only time you would see someone like me coming in was with a mop in a bucket. But I performed a procedure in the operating room that had never been performed by a layperson, period. And that was tracheal intubation. I was requested to report to the operating room to meet with Dr. Saffer. No one gave me any information as to why I was coming there. But I showed up there, and they uh, gave me the scrubs and the hat and the booties for my shoes and things like that. And the minute we walked through the door, there was total silence in the room. He politely uh, walked over to the anesthesiologist that was at the head of the patient and told them to get up. And he said, you sit down and intubate the patient, for which I did. Uh, they had amphitheaters in the operating room. There were medical students peering down to watch me perform this procedure. And I performed it successfully the very first time. And we went from room to room intubating unsuspecting uh, patients that were awaiting surgery. I had no idea that very shortly thereafter I would take that same skill and take it out into the street and perform it into a person's home. In order to provide effective medical care outside the hospital, Saffer needed to redesign the ambulance. First and foremost, Dr. Saffer's attitude was you had to sit at the vertex. You had to control the head from an airway standpoint. We would secure the stretchers to the side of the vehicle. Airway management oxygen was automatically right there at your fingertips. If you had to do CPR, there was a bunch so that you could actually be able to sit there and do compressions. We could monitor someone's heart rate and determine whether or not they were or not having a heart attack and subsequently how we were going to treat them. All of these things were unheard of outside of a hospital. When Freedom House paramedics responded to a call, they were considered a spectacle. And we would pull up, lights and siren, get out in our white uniforms, carrying all this stuff and we take care of somebody right there on the spot, and people would stand around and watch and see what the heck you're doing. People started requesting Freedom House 
in lieu of the police. Even police officers themselves, when a family member needed any type of pre-hospital care, they would call in and tell the dispatcher to send the Freedom House Ambulance Service. You could tell that we had become accepted when the police were started. Initially, they would say, call the Freedom Boys, and in due time, it became the Freedom House Men. But in Pittsburgh at that time, a black paramedic responding to a medical emergency was not always welcome. In one particular case, I remember distinctly, a lady, this was in a part of the city of Pittsburgh where the University of Pittsburgh was located, and she fell down the steps, and her husband called. We responded, myself and my partner, and she had dislocated her hip, and I went to touch her, and she was screaming, I don't touch me, don't touch me, I don't want you touching me. Okay, so I pulled her husband aside and said, look, you have to talk to her or we'll leave and you can wait for about an hour for uh, police to show up and they won't be able to take care of her and she may lose the use of her legs. You got to help me figure out how to take care of her if you wanted to be able to walk again. (laughs) And he, he went over to her and said, look, you just shut up and let these guys take care of you. All right? They know what they're doing. Word of this revolutionary new type of medical care spread far beyond Pittsburgh. Freedom House medics traveled as far away as Germany to put on a display to an international symposium of physicians who came away from that display saying that a well-trained and equipped paramedic in the field is as competent and qualified to handle an emergency as a physician. People all over the country looked at the experiment and saw that it was quite valid. We're quite astonished to see that the first, the the guinea pigs of this were 25 or 30 black people from the Hill District of Pittsburgh. That kind of blew their minds. Phil Hallen says race was at the core of the creation of Freedom House and ultimately the reason for its demise. They contracted for these limited areas because this is a black operation for black people. That's why it started out. And when it was proven to be the model for EMS everywhere across the country, people said, well, you know, how come these people got it? We don't. It was a kind of a reversal of everything that we know about the civil rights movement. I'd like to say we were victims of our own success. We were only allowed to service the Hill District, Oakland, and the downtown business district. No other community within the city of Pittsburgh. The problem with that is the residents of those various communities got wind of the type of treatment that the residents of the Hill District were receiving and kind of uh, balked at that. How dare you give those people over there in that low-income area the best possible treatment when I have to rely on the police? And those types of concerns were given to the mayor. The demise became very apparent. We were not getting any money from the city. They started cutting back on the dollars. They would not let us expand. I wanted to expand the operation. And we all wanted to expand, and the community wanted us to expand. But Pittsburgh's mayor had his own idea. He wanted to create a brand new citywide emergency medical service. He asked Mitchell Brown to come down to City Hall to meet with him. Brown had prepared a plan to create a citywide service that he would present to the mayor. And we went down and we met with the mayor. 
And he said to me, he said, uh, we got a problem. And I said, okay, Mr. Mayor, what's the problem? And uh, he said, you guys are making too much noise when you respond downtown with your ambulances, so I want you to, I don't want you to use the sirens anymore. He said, I want you to use a bell. I said, a bell? You mean like an ice cream truck? He said, yeah, that's it. And I said, well, let's talk about my plan here on how we could transfer and move Freedom House transition into running this whole entire city. And he said, just leave it on my desk, and I'll give it to him, you know, so-and-so, and, and, and we'll get back to you. He said, but you work on that bell thing. I knew then it was uh, the end. After that, the city required everyone from Freedom House, the most highly trained and experienced paramedics in the country, to apply for entry-level positions with Pittsburgh's new EMS. They were totally unqualified to be trainees because they were the people that were trained to be the instructors. And so the city service shifted from essentially this black service providing coverage for the black community and then being sought after in the white community to being a white-dominated workforce. What ultimately happened in Freedom House was that we turned over all of the equipment, we turned over all of our radio apparatus, we turned over all of our medical stuff uh, to the city, and Freedom House died a quiet death on October 15th, uh, 1975. The determination at that time was to eliminate as many of Freedom House's employees, if not all of them, as humanly possible, and it was very, very successful. Not allowing uh, someone such as myself to use any of the training uh, that I had undergone at Freedom House. I couldn't examine the patient. I couldn't uh, talk on the radio. I couldn't provide any care at all. I was merely an observer. So those are the types of things that, unfortunately, Pittsburgh EMS put in place to kind of frustrate individuals to a point where they would just throw up their hands and say, hey, y'all got this. I don't need to be going through this. John Moon was one of the few Freedom House paramedics who remained with the new city EMS. That's because he refused to quit. I went on a call with a crew, which turned out to be a cardiac arrest, and they didn't know what to do. So they looked at the person that wasn't allowed to do anything and said, you take over, for which I, in turn, could have very easily said, hey, I'm just here. But I, I took over the call and assigned duties and responsibilities, and we subsequently saved the life of the patient. The problem with that is it had to be kept a secret because I wasn't allowed to do anything. And from that time on, I knew I had to step up my game. I had to be more outspoken, more vocal, more determined to make sure that I could do whatever was required by the department. John Moon served in Pittsburgh's EMS for 35 years. He eventually became assistant EMS chief and retired in 2010. Most of the others from Freedom House moved on, including Mitchell Brown, who did not want to take an entry-level position with the city's new EMS. Brown eventually left Pittsburgh and became the commissioner for emergency medical services in Cleveland, Ohio, and later director of the Ohio State Department of Public Safety. He's now a city council member in Columbus. We saved lives. We made a difference in the quality of life for the community. And then people built upon that and they replicated it throughout the entire United States. 
I think every EMS system in this country owes a deep debt of gratitude to Freedom House. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottman. We're now joined by Debbie Molina. She's the perspective editor at the New England Journal of Medicine, and she's also senior editor of this podcast. So, Debbie, you selected and edited a perspective article by Dr. Matthew Edwards about the history of the Freedom House Ambulance Service. Were you and your colleagues familiar with the Freedom House story at all? We weren't. Um, and in fact, one of the most interesting aspects we thought initially of the story was that it had been suppressed. I mean, it wasn't surprising given what had happened to the service itself, which was that it was basically eventually defunded and taken over by or, or supplanted by an all-white emergency medical service. But that in itself was really telling. And at the same time, the systems and protocols that were created became a model for the rest of the country. And it really struck us as, you know, something that had a lot of lessons for our current moment. And when you read this, Debbie, were you surprised? I mean, what did you think? I mean, I had assumed that we had paramedics, loaded ambulances, pre-hospital care all along. But what what did you think when you read this? I was surprised too. Um, and I suppose I had never really thought about it. But, you know, I was born in the 1960s and I had no idea that this was a new innovation or certainly where it had come from. You said that this story has implications for today. What do you mean by that? Well, so, you know, we published this in spring of 2021. We received the original submission at the end of 2020. So what was going on in 2020 was, you know, obviously COVID, but also racial reckoning um, in the United States triggered by the killing of George Floyd. And we were sort of at the height of the cries of protesters for defunding the police, which really meant let's, you know, shift the funding from law enforcement to the people who can do some aspects of that work much better and much more justly and fairly. And with that news hook, this was a story of shifting responsibility from the police to healthcare workers, to new healthcare workers. So essentially, why did the journal publish this and why does the journal publish stories like this? Because medicine doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, there are many aspects of society that affect medicine and that are affected by what happens in medicine and healthcare. And we want to make sure that our readers who are primarily practicing physicians are, are well informed about issues that affect medicine and healthcare, but that also affect their patients' lives outside of the hospital or the examining room. And so certainly there's been a lot of attention 
lately to social determinants of health and race and racism being among the most important ones. And it's important to get a clear picture of what is damaging people's health before you can figure out how to improve people's health. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rachel. Debbie Molina is the perspective editor at the New England Journal of Medicine, and she's also senior editor of this podcast, Intention to Treat. Next time, the growing pressures on primary care doctors, why so few are choosing to enter the field, and why a growing number are getting out. I would get an email showing me where I was, if I was in the red or in the black. Did I owe the practice money back? Or did they owe me money? But that's such a horrible way to set up a system of care where we are supposed to be creating a therapeutic alliance with our patients. Instead, this pressure is being put on us to see as many people as possible. That's a system that sets up an antagonism right there that's really, really broken. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.